thanks, Brother Jason. I appreciate you singing. I, I preached at the rescue mission for 12 years in front of all these rough guys and gals. But I won't stop here and try to sing. I just, I'd rather do that than sing up here. Romans chapter number 10 this morning. Order of service. So I'm right here. I'm going to check you off, Jason. You sang. <laughs> check me off here. Okay. Romans chapter number 10. Let's read verses. We left off at verse number 8. But let's read that verse again, and then we'll start with verse number 9. Let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege we have, Lord, to teach and to learn your word, Father. And pray, God, you just bless the, message, uh, the lesson this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read chapter uh, 10, verse 8, and verse number 9. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what's the word of faith? Verse number 9, that if we shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So, Number nine says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and shalt believe in thine heart. Uh, that word confess is oftentimes rendered profess. Either way, it means to speak of it or to declare it openly. We can profess Christ. We can confess Christ. Okay. Uh, it it uh, means to, to, with your mouth, declare something. Can you get saved just by saying it in your head? I don't know. When I got saved, I, I had to confess Christ as God and get saved. Um, now, what this confession or this profession does is it expresses our agreement, expresses our agreement with what God holds to be true and what he declares to be true. And it signify, uh, signifies, I can't talk, you can't sing or talk either one today. <laughs> and signifies a declaration or an assent of our agreement. That's what we're confessing to. We're confessing that we agree that Jesus Christ is God. Amen. Okay? It signifies our declaration or our assent with what God has declared and extends to all of God's declarations. Number one, we... We live in a, we're, our lost estate, our sinful condition. We have to agree with that. And our need of a Savior. We agree to those when we get saved. I'm a lost sinner bound for hell. We have to agree to what God, what God declares. That's what he declares. Why do you need to be saved? Because you're lost. And you're in sin. And you need a Savior. That confession, which is salvation, is a confession which means that the truth confessed, confessed with the mouth is known and received in the heart. The belief of the heart is therefore joined with the confession. I'm going to go back one step here. Nope. I thought I missed something, but I didn't. Um, so I'll check that off. I did not miss that. <laughs> Um, so, our, our confession, our belief of the heart is therefore joined 
with our confession. So salvation is a union of faith and confession or profession. We believe in our heart and then we profess what's in our heart. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. You know, and I ask him to be my savior. Now, that same verse here, verse number nine, that that shall believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from a dead, thou shalt be saved. Why is so much emphasis placed on the resurrection? Why do we care about that? Wasn't the work of Christ finished when he died? No, not at all. All these great religious leaders, you can name all the ones you want to, died. Jesus Christ is the only one that ever rose again. Amen. He's alive today. The rest of those, you can go visit their tombs if you can find them. They're still there. Their, their message may live on, but they don't. Our Savior lives. Without his resurrection, his death would have been would not be the atoning death. Look at, uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me show a couple of verses to you here. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 15, 15. Look at verse number 16. Oops. 15 and 16. For, a Christ, for if the dead raise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is what? Vain. Vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they which are fallen asleep, those that have died, are uh, in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Christ had to raise again. Hey, Brother Hepner. Hey, come on up and start preaching. <laughs> no reason to wait around. It's like he's got a big, thick message there for us. Without his resurrection, he couldn't atone for our sin. Brother, we're in chapter uh, 10 of Romans, verse number 9 and 10. Nor would he himself be the Son of God. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's, let's look at verse number 3 through 5. Concerning his son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by what? By the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. By the resurrection, that's extremely important. He died, but he rose again. Extremely important. Through his resurrection, he obtained perfect victory over sin, death, and condemnation for all of those who believe in him. That would be us. So this is the principal ground for our justification. Look at, uh, look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. 
let's look at 24, then 25. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for whose offenses? Ours. Ours. And raised again for whose justification? Ours. Ours. Okay? It's extremely important that he rose again. His resurrection was the evidence that his work was finished. If he just died, oh, he was a good man. If he rose again, his, that's evidence that my work is finished. What I said was going to happen, happened. I rose again. And because I can raise myself, who else can I raise? Us. Us. Very good. Now, we're in the same verse here, verse number 10. Well, verse number 9, I guess we're still in. talks about the heart. Believe in thine heart. Your heart is your spirit, your immortal self. Fills your whole body. You can confuse or interchange, because the Bible does, or people do, about heart and soul, uh, spirit and soul all the time. And you can try to do to uh, delineate which characteristics of our being fall under soul and under, under spirit. But my research uh, has the spirit, has the heart falling under our spirit. Let me tell you why. The spirit is the man, me, who fell in the Garden of Eden. The spirit fell. Adam totally lost his spiritual life and consequently became totally depraved. Our mind didn't fall in the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, we would have been mindless. Our bodies didn't fall in the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, we would have been dead. What fell? This residue of our mind and body survived the fall. Therefore, Satan has built up all these great systems of materialistic and intellectual religions, if you will, throughout the world. And these false religions serve as passports for people that just want to believe easy, believe, uh, easy, believe anything, believe a you know my God is a tree or my God they can believe anything. It's a passport to them that Satan uses to delude millions of people who go to hell, destitute of spirituality. They have no spirit, and they're not saved. True faith does not lie in just the assessment of the mind to the gospel. Yeah, I agree with the gospel. A lot of folks agree with it, but that doesn't that isn't enough. Neither does true faith lie in the brain or the tongue. Just saying something doesn't make you saved. True faith lies in the heart. Faith is heart work. Believing in your heart. Such faith in which all the powers of the soul, our understanding, our will, our affections, everything like that is concerned. That kind of faith. Faith is seeing Jesus, beholding his glory and his fullness and his ability and willingness to be our Savior. Uh, if you're tentative about getting saved, because I'm not sure you can do it, I'm too bad. He can do it. You're never too bad. He can do it. But it's that kind of belief you got to have when you inventory your life and say, oh, I am, a, I am a dirty, filthy sinner. Can Christ save me? Yes. 
Everybody gets saved the same way. Faith is seeing Jesus. That verse says, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. This is not a confession of our sin. The verse says it's a confession of Christ. Do you see that in verse number 9? Thou shalt confess with thy mouth our dirty sins. No. Christ. You've got to proclaim Christ. You've got to confess he's my Savior. He saved me. Okay? I know I need a Savior. Jesus, confession of Christ, uh, is confessing that Jesus Christ is God. The acknowledgement of who Christ is. He's truly and properly God, 100%. He's God. He's also the Son of God. He's also the true Messiah. He is the mediator between God and man. He is our advocate. He is the only Savior of lost sinners. Nothing else will work. Jesus Christ. Nothing else will work. All the schemes and programs and methods, nothing's going to work except Jesus. And our faith in him regarding ourselves, we understand it's for our pardon. What's he pardoning? Our sin. It's for our justification. It's for our acceptance and salvation in him and through him. We have to have faith in Jesus. He said, I'll save you. We have to have that kind of faith that we believe he'll do it. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. If I confess with a mouth of I know he can do it because he said he would. Okay. Verse 11. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The scripture saith. Where's it saith it at? Saith it at. Where's it say it at? Let's look back at Isaiah 28. If you have a reference Bible or a study Bible, it's good to look, you know, whenever it says it is it saith by our ears written, look that up and see what was written. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Shall not make haste. I wonder what that means. That means shall not be impatient. The person that waiteth will not be ashamed or disappointed that he's having to wait. The shame of disappointment. Ever been uh, expecting something and then it didn't happen and you're kind of ashamed of that? Or maybe you're supposed to do something and you didn't do it? You're kind of ashamed of that? Okay. The shame. You will not have the shame of disappointment. Christ is going to come. Jesus is going to come. So there is perfect agreement in the, in the Old Testament and in the New. Paul shows, I want to take what he's talking about here, that the Jews who denied that the Gentiles will be fellow heirs with them were in error. It had been talked about in the Old Testament. Gentiles are coming. They're going to be part of the church. 
God's going to fold them in. And these Jews were in error. And Paul's showing them. The chosen people, the Jews, were angered. They were upset. They were miffed. They were rebellious. They were beyond themselves. Why? Not only at the freeness of God's justifying grace, including the Gentiles, but because there is no difference made as far as salvation is concerned between the Jews and the Gentiles. Whosoever will. The Jews thought, surely, surely there should be some special ceremony, some special doorway, even a secret handshake, something that we can do that's different than the Gentiles, apart from the path trodden down by the Gentiles for salvation. We wanted something different. We want something special. We've always been special. We're God's chosen people. And they get saved the same as we? Rephrase. We get saved the same as they? No. They rebelled against that. They didn't like that. It is whosoever believeth on him. And it doesn't matter who you are. As we learned, the Jewish nation sought to establish their own righteousness. They changed the law, didn't follow the law. They instituted all of their man-made uh, rites and ceremonies and everything else. They wanted to make their own righteousness without submitting themselves to God's righteousness. Look at verse number 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek in respect to the manner of salvation. All of sin, the same Lord is over all and rich to those who call upon him, whatever nationality they might be. These words really provoked Israel because they had been so long accustomed to the distinction of you know, uh, uh, in their own favor as the chosen race of God. We're the Jews. We're the chosen people. We are the oracles of God. We have all this stuff. We're special. How can we get saved the same way as the Gentiles do? They didn't like that. They, that was really upsetting to them. But Paul already made it clear in chapter 9 that... Um, the favored position of Israel was diminishing. Remember that? He was taking them down and bringing the Gentiles in. The Jews rejected Christ. They were diminished. He was taking them out, bringing them off the front of the stage here, as you were. Gentiles were taken. Paul made it plain that Jews, as individuals, we're not excluded from Christianity. They could get saved the same way as anybody else does. So the thrust of all that call upon him is that you Jews may be Christians the same way everybody else is. Nothing special, nothing privileged, nothing preferential, same way. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall is the same as the call on the Lord himself. Look at Acts 4.12. 
Acts chapter number 4, verse number 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Nothing else, nobody else, can save you. Now, turn back to Joel if you can find Joel. Page 931 in your old school field. I guess that's where it always is in your Bible here. Joel, Joel chapter number 2. right after Hosea, which is right after Daniel. It's right before Amos. Hope that helps. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Whoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise. That's the promise. Uh, back to Acts again, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Peter speaking. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter saying the same thing Joel said. Okay? Save. That's the promise. If we call upon his name, we shall be saved. Nothing added, nothing taken away, nothing, you know, everybody wants to add in keeping the law or doing all these things, nothing. Call upon the name of the Lord, you should be saved. We discussed this back in chapters 3 and 4. Now let's read verses 14 and 15. Oops. I almost read Acts there. 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So two big words here we've seen are no difference in chapter 10, verse 12, and whosoever in verse 13. It's no difference, and it's whosoever. These words uh, support God's position. This is God's salvation, God's position of extending the gospel to all people, Jews and Gentiles, on the same terms, just the same way. So this great leveling, you know, there's... Everybody's level at the foot of the cross. Everybody's going to stand there. Jason will be bigger than me, but still. 
we're at the same, the, the ground is level. See? I see a couple of heads sticking up there, but that, anyways. <laughs> I don't want the basketball players. But anyways, so this is the great leveling before God, considering them as one race. What race is that? The human race. We're one race. The human race. That's how God sees it. And this was totally repugnant to the Jews and it caused deep resentment towards Paul. They were offended. They were pretty upset. And Paul justifies these two verses, you know, um, a plea for salvation require, uh, implies faith. Faith implies knowledge. Knowledge implies instruction. Instruction implies an instructor. So it is plain that if God would have all men to be saved and call upon him, he designed preachers to be sent out, whose proclamation of mercy was to be heard. Amen. That people might hear that and believe in Christ and be saved. That was God's plan. As it is written, it said in verse 15, Let's look at Isaiah 52. This was a prediction of Isaiah, of Isaiah 52, uh, verse number 7. Oops. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, and publish peace, and bringeth good tidings of, bring good tidings of good, that publish salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy Lord, thy God reigneth. Amen. This prophecy foretold the advent of preachers, messengers, preachers of the gospel. And it was an argument founded on the principle that if God designs the ends, what else does he provide? The means. the means. I want everybody to be saved. I want everybody to accept Christ as their Savior. How am I going to do that? What are the means? I'm going to make preachers. I'm going to call men to proclaim my word all around the world. Okay? So it would mean that the Gentiles got saved. And if they were going to get saved, what had to happen? They needed some preachers. Read your Bible. That's what these apostles were doing out there. Preaching. Paul was doing that. Read all of his books to the, he wrote to the Gentile churches that he started. Preaching. Preaching the word. These verses are the enabling commission, if you will, to every true missionary labor on earth. Somebody has a message and they're trying to put it forth. So people can hear it and be saved. Turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read a few verses here. Verse 18. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Preaching. God doesn't have a skywriter up in space and doesn't hijack everybody's device and talk about the gospel. He made preachers. And that includes radio preachers, TV, you know, everybody that preaches the true word of God is a preacher, a fourth teller. Their job is to tell of God's plan of salvation. So God named the end, everybody should get saved, but he provided the means. So God's answer to the wretchedness of earth's sin and squalor is a messenger, a preacher, and a message of redemption authenticated by Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must look at the method God has chosen. We're in the method. This is it. We must trust and use the means that God chose. You know, churches strive to find new methods, um, New devices, new programs, new something. I've been through a lot of churches. Not through, I've been in a lot of churches in my 45 years. But all these modern approaches to reach people don't always work. Or if they do, they compromise. I know what will draw folks in. A Christian rock band. Sure, they're in. People come to hear the band, but what's lost? Message. God doesn't like rock music. Doubt if he even attends. You know? He is against that sort of thing. If you're bringing people in just to entertain them, that's not preaching the word of God to them. The means are preaching. So all these modern approaches to bring people in so you can give them a, a sermonette doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do much good. I've talked to folks when I was when I was working there. Boy, this has a good band. There, you got to go there. And I said, I don't do bands, except band aids. I don't do bands. I don't do any kind of band thing, you know. Preach the word. Verse sixteen. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, The Lord who hath believed our report. Lord who hath believed our report. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Um, I'll just read it here. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Where shall I find a believer? Isaiah speaks as if hardly anyone was going to believe. Where am I going to find a believer? Uh, Paul softens this in verse 16. But they have not all believed, obeyed the gospel. People haven't believed. They've heard the message, but they haven't believed. Welcome to today. Just as in ancient Israel, times past, Israel didn't believe the prophets regarding the Messiah. They didn't believe about Jesus. We talked about that a couple lessons ago. He was going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
despised and rejected. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe anything about him. They were expecting, remember, they were expecting the, the king to pull up in a limbo chariot or a chariotazine or whatever you call it, you know, dressed in fine, wonderful garb, and he was going to deliver them from Roman rule. What did he come to deliver them from? Sin. Sin. They rejected Jesus. The Jews in Paul's day would not believe and obey the gospel in order to be saved. They rejected it. They rejected Christ. They rejected the gospel. Verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing cometh by the word of God. It does not mean that everybody that hears is going to believe the gospel. Do we know that today? Yes. Yeah, unfortunately we do. People that don't believe it can't grasp it, can't take it. They don't believe it. But it means that faith does not exist unless there's a message or a report to believe. If I don't give someone a report or a message that they can believe or not believe, then there's nothing, you know, that, that's all I can do. It's up to them to believe or not to believe. The gospel cannot come any other way by such a message, preaching, showing everybody what God says. Unless there's something to be made known, it can't be believed. I went through high school thinking that way. I don't know it, I don't believe it, and I got the report card to prove it. Especially math. I'll never need math because I was going to be a mechanic. You know how long it took me to find out I needed math when I was a mechanic? Yeah, I started reading these little instruments and calipers and micrometers and stuff. Yeah, not long. Unless there's a message to believe, we can't believe it. This shows the importance of the message and the fact that men are converted by the instrumentality of preaching the truth about Christ. And hearing, it says in that verse, faith cometh by hearing. And hearing the report or the message, the word of God, is a message sent by the command of God. God commanded the message to be preached. Look at, uh, look at John chapter 12, Gospel of John chapter 12. Gospel of John chapter number 12, verse 49. John 12, 49, Jesus speaking, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a what? commandment what I should say and what I should speak and I know that his commandment is life everlasting whatsoever I speak therefore even as the father said unto me so I speak Christ's message was from God the message of God everlasting life very simple but the objector says, we looked at all these objectors throughout Romans. Well, what about this? Oh, you know, they always raise their hand in the back. Hey, what about? You know, it's the what about guy. The objector says, 
Hey, it's God's word sent by his direction. Therefore, if withheld by him, those who do not believe can't be blamed. The argument is, if God, God could not justly condemn men for not believing the gospel. Try that. Uh, next time you get pulled over for a ticket for speeding or something, just for an example, try that. I don't believe that law. And see what he does. Does the old cuffing stuff, you know? I don't believe that. I'm not responsible because I don't believe it. That doesn't hold up in court. Okay? Doesn't hold up with God. The objector could not justly, uh, says God can't justly condemn men for not believing the gospel. We've had other such petty objections. Look at verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went unto all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's, uh, I'm not going to read it to you, Psalm 19.4. Their line is gone out through all the, throughout all the earth, and their word, words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. The word went out. Everybody back then, when this word went out, heard the word. Throughout the world, it was there. It was preached. It was presented. So Paul states here that the word had actually been furnished to the Jews and the Gentiles. The substance of Paul's answer was to this, to this objection that they were actually in possession of the word. What did the Jews have? The Old Testament, oracles of God. They had the message. Turn back to Judges, chapter number 2, just for an example. Judges chapter number 2. Verse number 10. They had the message. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Nor yet the works which he had done in Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. What happened? They didn't know the word. The message was out there. What's the question? question is, what did they do with the message? What did they do with it? They didn't pass it down. They didn't teach their kids. They didn't teach their friends. They didn't pass it down. So you have a whole generation starting out here. They don't know anything about God. Who's God? And today in our society, we try to propagate the gospel and teach the word, but they keep, uh, the society keeps rebelling and saying, no, we don't want prayer in school. We don't want the Bible in school. We don't want uh, anything about God. Take out anything about Jesus. We don't want to hear that. Take away the message. We don't need it. And we have generations today that have never heard the word of God. Because every time they try to, they're attacked for it. They're stifled for it. That's a fact. 
We have a message. It's just trying to get it out. It's the hard part. Societies, governments, political parties, whatever you want to call, people are against God. They're trying to take God away. They've taken God away. Just like everything else they've taken away. I'm going to stop here for today on verse 19. Let's say a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the lesson today, Father. Pray, God, you'd, you'd bless this service, Lord, this morning. Give uh, Brother Hepner the power to preach your word, Father. Pray, God, you'd bless his message, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.